come on a journey with a cinephile. Wake up, sucker. We're thieves and we're bad guys. That's exactly what we are. Listeners to episode 124 of Journey with a Cinephile, a horror movie podcast. As always, I'm your tour guide here of David Garrett Jr. recording out of Columbus, Ohio. And on this episode for you here, I have Centennial Club number 10. This will be the last one that I do for these of this year. And two featured reviews are going to be one getting its wide release here in 2022 of Slapface. And then I have that paired up with the last 1922 movie that I could find of The Headless Horseman. And then also on this episode for you, I have mini reviews of Ultrasound. I've given another rewatch to Demons. I got to watch Darkness Falls and then another 2022 release of X. It's too bad that movie didn't come out a little bit earlier in the weeks. I would have had that as a feature review here, but I will digress on that. Don't think there's anything else I need to get up to speed with here for this episode. What I'm going to do is get you over to a very brief break before I get into those mini reviews, and I hope you enjoy coming on this journey with me. Journey with a Cinephile. And for my first mini review on this episode is going to be Ultrasound. This is technically from 2021, but it's getting its wide release here this year. This was directed by Rob Schroeder. It was written by Connor Steck. And this stars Vincent Carheiser, Chelsea Lopez, and Brito Wool. This is only listed as a sci-fi film on the IMDb. There are some horror elements, so that's why I'm going to be covering it here. This is from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 5.7 on IMDb and a 3.2 on Letterboxd with a snaps being after his car breaks down. Glenn spends one hell of a odd night with a married couple setting into motion chain of events that alter their lives plus those of several random strangers. So it's a movie that caught my interest when I saw a bit of the trailer at the Gateway Film Center. Now when it looked intriguing I stopped because I don't normally watch trailers. I almost didn't go see this as everything I was seeing was pointing this not to be a horror movie. What was one of the deciding factors is some people in the community I respect are including it in their genre watches, so that's what I'm doing here. And then I'll also kind of come back to that here in just a second. So, 
What I like about this movie is the reality of how everyone is connected in the movie, and I think it's interesting. I don't want to do any spoilers here, so I'm going to try to avoid as much as I can, but I will say is that I don't necessarily think this is horror, but we do get some elements. There is much more of a science fiction movie with how these fit together. Now, the first thing I'll delve into would be that it's about reality and how we perceive it. There are things from the beginning that if you're paying attention, make sense as things get revealed. I found that to be clever and good writing. This is a movie that needs a second watch now that I know, and just to see kind of what I might have missed and what I didn't necessarily knew went together as well. Going along with this idea, we have our main character of Glenn coming to a house that is belonging to Cindy and Art. Now, from what we are getting in the beginning, these two are married. He was her former high school English teacher, then they got married when she was quite young, and it is now loveless. That might not actually be the case, though. We also see Art working with George, who is running for re-election as a senator, and in turn, his mistress of Katie. Much like what the movie is doing with this, I like that the reveal is that it's messing with our minds. We will see something, and then it'll change, and it makes you question if what you saw was real or not. I think the movie does well in explaining it without going too far into things and ruining it. There is this illusion by the end and allowing us to make our interpretations. Even the title of the movie, how things play in with the story and how it is used was interesting to me. Then the other part is we have Shannon, Dr. Connors, and the rest of the team as they have Glenn and Cindy are interacting with them and they're part of almost like an experiment. Now this is what confused me the most, but with the explanation there, it is the missing piece. What they're doing with the two is an experiment of sorts as I was saying. There is a shady government angle that comes into play, and with George, I'll be honest, it's done subtle. I can appreciate that for sure. What they're doing with Glenn and Cindy also plays in with reality and not being sure what is real as well. To close out my ideas to the story, I was impressed with how they could edit this together and it makes sense. Now, for this to work though, you need some good acting. I'd say that it fits. Karth Heiser and Lopez are both solid. They play the characters of Glenn and Cindy. We aren't sure who they truly are, and we see a couple of variations. I thought they were good, especially at reveals. I feel horrible for them, to be honest. And I could also throw in the actor of Quali on a smaller basis. Wool is solid as someone that sees what they're doing is wrong and wants to help. I like Andy Bimpy and Stevenson as mirrors of each other. One is doing a scientific look, while the other one is doing it to make money. Aside from that, I'd say the rest of the cast rounded this out for what was needed. The last thing to cover would be the cinematography effects and soundtrack. For the former, this is shot well. I'll also give credit to the editing as I think they work in tandem along with the cinematography. It makes you question what you're seeing and what the movie is going for. We don't get in a lot in a way of effects, but again, it helps you to question things, so that works for me. The soundtrack is solid. We get to hear these tones which are affecting our characters. That fit as I like that it's from the world of the movie. And also the soundtrack got my anxiety to go up, which does help given that vibe of a horror movie. In conclusion here, this is one that I debated to see in theaters. I didn't know what I was going to be getting, but I'm not fully convinced that it is horror, but it has elements that make it adjacent. We aren't sure what is real in the reality that we are in and what our characters are doing. They're being manipulated, which is scary. The soundtrack helps for that feel. I'd say that the acting was good. The cinematography and editing also helped for this to work. I would say that this soundtrack also helps on top of that. I would say this is an above average movie and is coming up just short of being good. It is one that I do want to rewatch for the year ends though as well. So my rating here for Ultrasound is a 7.5 out of 10. And then up next for you as my second mini review, I have Demons. This goes by the original title of Demoni. This is from 1985. This was directed by Lamberto Bava 
and then it looks like the story was from Dardano Sacchetti, who also helped co-write the screenplay with Dario Argento, Bava, and Franco Farini. This stars Urbano Barberini, Natasha Hovey, and Carl Zinni. This is a horror film that is from Italy that is currently sitting on a 6.6 .6 on IMDb and a 3.5 on Letterboxd, with the stops being a group of random people is invited to a screening of a mysterious movie, only to find themselves trapped in the theater with ravenous demons. So this is a movie that I grew up with. I did a mini review back on episode 50, so if you want to go back there to hear a little bit more, I would recommend that. But I ended up watching the 4K that I finally got, I believe, for Christmas. And I will say it looks and sounds great. Now, just some brief thought that I was going to go through here this time around is that I love the story despite the plot holes. This is, you know, a lot of Italian nightmare logic. The setting is great, though. Being in this dark theater and everything like that and having everything go down there is great for me. And I also like a little bit of the lore that they're introducing here with like Nostradamus and demons and everything. But the way this movie handles demons is almost like an infection zombie type film, which is a precursor to things I'd say like Wreck or 28 Days Later. I think the acting is fine. Nobody's great, but there are some great one-liners. I noticed that there's some issues that I have a little bit with the effects. I like the look of the demons and everything they do there with the eyes and the skin and fingers and teeth and everything like that. I do have some issues with some wounds not being as bloody, but... It is what it is. It's not going to ruin the movie for me or anything like that. But this is one that I can see the flaws and yet still enjoy it. It is a fun movie that takes a scary concept of possession and does something a little bit different with it. This is a take on the infection zombie type film where we are featuring possessed people that can move fast. It doesn't necessarily look at the religious angle, which is interesting. I think that there are some slight issues with the logic, story elements, and some of the effects. But overall, this is just an entertaining movie. I heard... Mr. Parka talking about how this is the most like heavy metal movie and I can kind of see where he's getting at there and agree to an extent. This is one that I still like despite its issues and I've actually come up since the last time I've watched this one as my rating for demons is an 8.5 out of 10 this time around. And then up next for you I have Darkness Falls. This is from 2003. This is... Directed by Jonathan Liebsman, the story is from Joe Harris, and the screenplay was co-written between John Fasano and James Vanderbilt. This stars Chaney Clee, Emma Caulfield Ford, and Lee Cormie. This is a fantasy horror mystery thriller film that is a co-production between the United States and Australia. This is currently sitting on a 4.9 on IMDb and a... 2.2 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being, a vengeful spirit has taken the form of the Tooth Fairy to exact revenge on the town that lynched her 150 years earlier. Her only opposition is the only child, now grown up, who has survived her before. So this is a movie that I remember seeing when it came out. I'll be honest, I enjoyed it. It was one that seemed to be always on the movie channels quite a bit, so I would watch it regularly as if there's nothing else on, I'm always going to default to horror. It has some issues, which was something I recognized even back then. This is the first time watching it with a critical eye, though. So I'm just going to assume most people my age has seen this movie or at least know of it. When I hear people mocking it, they laugh about the fact that our killer is a tooth fairy. I don't mind this as the idea. Being that she can only attack you when you're in the dark is fine. This is playing on one of the more common fears of the dark. Now, I feared the dark for a good portion of my childhood. Going from that, the town being called Darkness Falls is a bit cheesy, but I mean, I've seen worse, and I even like it a bit. And they also reference the lighthouse early into the movie, which this comes back into play for the final showdown. I think this is all fine, but nothing blows you away here, but 
I see what they're doing. What I noticed this time around, and being more of a seasoned horror fan, this movie is boring. We get a decent setup. It sets up Kyle as the one haunted by this. And we are given a bit of a mirror with Michael going from the same thing that he was. Now, Kyle was the boy that kind of is the catalyst that starts everything, who's all grown up now. And then Michael is the younger brother of Kyle's love interest from when he was a teen. Now, Kyle points out to Matt, who is a police officer, that there is a usually a high number of disappearances of children over the last 100 years in this town. Even the look of Matilda, who is the tooth fairy in this, is good. But as I was saying in the last time, like, the last little bit, that's where it ends. When someone is attacked, they're pulled away, and they're pretty much pulled off screen. The body afterward might be dropped or thrown, but too much of it happens off screen. It gets repetitive, and it struggled to keep my interest. There are some good things here, but it doesn't utilize enough of them for me. Now, where I'll go next would be the cinematography and effects. Now, for the former, I like what they're trying to do to keep our characters in the light. Some of this, I think, comes off as cheap and doesn't necessarily work. I can forgive some of it, though. The cinematography in general is decent. I do like the idea of Matilda, and the reason that she fears the light is due to her being burned. Her skin is sensitive. The porcelain mask she wears is creepy. What is underneath is CGI, but it looks fine. It is weak, though, on the effects, if I've already said that, though. Now, going from there, I will take this to the acting, and I think that Clay comes off as wooden. He isn't great as our lead. Ford is about the same. She looks sad and even tired, but we don't get a lot of emotion. And the same could be said for Cormie. The rest of the cast, though, I would say is fine. I think there's some issues here with the writing. I did find it interesting to have Angus Sampson here, as I know him from the Insidious movies. And then we also get a young Emily Browning, who did a lot in this era. No one stands out to me, though, unfortunately. So that's about the extent of what I want to go into for this movie. I think there was potential here, but it's kind of just plagued for when it came out. Having the Tooth Fairy be the killer is a bit cheesy, but I like what they do with the idea. Being that, that she sticks to the dark, and if you peek and see her, she haunts you until you die. Trying to keep our characters to the light adds difficulty. My problem, though, is that we don't get to see the kills. The acting is bland, and the movie just doesn't use what works for the movie. I will say the cinematography and soundtrack are both fine. Younger me liked this movie quite a bit more, but as an adult, I see that it's below average. So my rating here for Darkness Falls is a 4.5 out of 10. And my last mini-review for this episode is going to be X. This is from here in 2022. This was written and directed by Ty West. This stars Mia Goth, Jenna Ortega, and Brittany Snow. This is a horror film from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 7.6 on IMDb and a 3.8 on Letterboxd, with our synopsis being in 1979, a group of young filmmakers set out to make an adult film in rural Texas. But when their reclusive elderly hosts catch them in the act, the cast finds themselves fighting for their lives. So this is a movie that I learned about and I was excited. I try to temper my expectations in cases like this to not be let down. West is a writer and director who has movies that I enjoy, so that added to it. From the bit of the trailer that I saw, the movie had my attention. Jamie and I went to see this at the Gateway Film Center during opening weekend as well. And just so you kind of get a preference here, if I wasn't doing what I'm doing on the next episode, this would have been the featured review for that. But, not trying to play my hand too early here, and I will kind of get into the outro as to, you know, why this is a mini-review here. So... I like what this movie is doing here, and I think it does a great job in setting it up. Jamie and I were talking after the movie ended, and I said to her that West is known for doing slow burn type movies. She didn't think this was a slow one from the start, and I can agree with her there, but the horror elements don't start until about the halfway point. 
She pointed out, though, that we are getting the making of this adult film that keeps your interest until then, and I agree there. I'd even go as far to say that the dread starts the moment this group gets to the rural part of Texas. They are in Houston, I believe, if, in the beginning, if memory serves. Now, they end up going closer to, like, Louisiana as we're getting bayous. This movie does feel like it borrows from the Texas Chainsaw Massacre or even Eaten Alive. I don't mind paying the homage with the story elements, though. So then I'm going to go over to the social commentary here. Now, some people might groan about me saying that, but it's done subtle here. The major one is sexuality. Maxine and Bobby Lynn both are comfortable with theirs. They don't mind getting naked or even having sex with someone they don't have deeper feelings for. Now, Wayne even comes to terms with it from life experiences. Both women have sex with Jackson on film. Maxine has an interesting backstory that doesn't necessarily add a lot, but it's an interesting reveal. Now, we have juxtapositioning this with Lorraine. Her nickname in the movie is Church Mouse. She doesn't talk a lot, and she stares at the other women, and they think she might be a prude. She does surprise everyone by wanting to be in the movie after things have gotten started. This is interesting because it upsets RJ, and that becomes a catalyst for the events of the night. Now, sticking with the idea of sexuality, we have Pearl. She interacts with Maxine, and we get some interesting reveals with pictures. I didn't understand fully where things were going there at first. This elderly couple harbors some secrets, and I found it to be interesting. I do find some of what we get here problematic just due to their age and how things play out. It doesn't ruin the movie, though. I want to shift this slightly here to the idea of sexuality with religion. It tends to make people more prudish, hence the nickname for Lorraine, and things that are getting said by the televangelist that's on TV. It makes sense for the reveal of a character for sure. Our group also knows what they're doing is wrong in not telling their host of Howard. Wayne is taking advantage of him. It also builds tension with worrying about him finding out. I don't think there is much more that I want to go into for the story here without going into spoilers, so I'll take this to the acting. I thought it was good across the board. Goth is a solid as our lead here. She is one that doesn't do a lot, but I love that she's sticking with the horror genre for most of her young career so far. What also works is that she is determined to be a star. There's also something in her past that works. Ortega is good as our reserved woman of the group. I like to see Brittany Snow as the more sexualized woman here. We do get to see her and Goth topless, if you're interested in that. Kid Cudi was good as Jackson. I liked Henderson as our greasy character. I was also glad to see Owen Campbell. He's an actor that has impressed me in everything that I've seen so far, this included. Steven Err and the rest of the cast rounded this out for what was needed as well. So that'll take me over to the effects, cinematography, and soundtrack. For this movie, it becomes a slasher film with exploitation elements. I like that the kills are implementing different tools you'd find on a farm. That added a good element. They're also brutal. From what I could tell, they were practical as well. If not, they hid what they were doing very well, so I would give credit to the CGI then if that's the case. And I think the cinematography also helps with that, and I thought that was great. We get some beautiful shots, and I also think it was edited together masterfully. This is paying homage with some of the shots to Texas Chainsaw as well, and I thought that was a good touch. The soundtrack is something else that I thought worked well. We get songs from the era. There's also music that ramps up the tension and atmosphere. So in conclusion here, I'm glad that I saw this. We are getting an interesting period piece slasher film. There is elements that add commentary, which ticks boxes for me. The acting is good across the board. Thought the effects were as well, and they go brutal. This movie looks beautiful and of the era. What they do with the soundtrack works as well. I'll be honest is that this is high up there right now for one of my favorite West films. I'm going to give this a rewatch before the end of the year to see how this stands up with a second go-around. After this viewing, though, I had this as a good movie with potential to go higher. So my rating for X is the highest that I can give to a movie that is, you know, newer 
and you know for also being a first time watch and i'm giving it a nine out of ten now what i'm gonna go ahead and do is get you over the trailer of my first featured review tom i know you're trying your best Stop, no. mariah spit on him your mom would have been proud of you but i don't think she'd feel the same way about lucas right now you ready this is gonna hurt That. We were just playing slap face. What happened? Did you see it? I grew up down on Bowling Lane. Come back here, pig! Not far from where you guys are at. Lucas, sometimes we do terrible things. We can't help ourselves. I'm a Wiccan. It's like good witchcraft. I never wonder what he does with himself. I mean, where he goes. You don't get it. It's something just for us. There's something I gotta know. Are you good or evil? She doesn't eat up the bad kids. She's their friend. And for my first feature review on this episode is going to be Slapface. This is from 2021. This is written and directed by Jeremiah Kipp. This stars August Montaro, Mike Manning, and Lebby Bari, as well as also featuring Maribel Lee, Bianca D'Ambrose, Chiara D'Ambrose, Lucas Hassel, Dan Hedaya, Alex Shotland, John Backstrom, Matt Kerr, Nick Thur, Curtis Braley, Naha Mataro, Joseph DeGenero, Stella Holland King, Larry Minhol, and Michael David Thurston. This is a horror thriller film that is from the United States. It is currently set on a 5.2 on IMDb and a 2.7 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being a boy deals with the loss of his mother by creating a dangerous relationship with a monster rumored to live in the woods. So this is a movie that I first learned about as it was an early 2022 release here on Shudder. And it went on a list of movies to check out as January is a tough month. I ended up having some movies that I rented on VOD or got the chance to see something in the theater. What didn't help was that not a lot of people were all that high on it. They liked it, but it didn't seem to be getting a lot of love. The week that I saw this, there wasn't a horror movie in theater at the time, so I decided to give it a go. So before I actually jump into the movie itself, let me do some featured notes on some of the key players, and we'll start off with our director of Kip. He has 20 credits in this role, Niner and Horror. His first was 2014 with Bernice. Since then, he has The Minions, The Sadist, Black Wake, Progeny, Teresa and Allison, and now this movie. Now there's also a short that was, you know, slap face that has expanded into this movie here. Upcoming, he also has something called Siren. Now, as a writer, he has six credits, Fiverr and Horror. This is the only one that I've seen. Moving to our actors, I'll start with Montaro, who has four credits. Two are in Horror, with his first one in the genre being The Nun, and now this movie, so I've seen both of his. Then there is a brother in the movie of Manning. He's been in 18 things. Fiverr and Horror, with his first being Ginger Dead Man 3, Saturday Night Cleaver. 
He followed it up with case number 13, Delirium and The Call, before being in this. And he was also in MFA, which I don't necessarily know if that's classified as horror, but I know it's definitely adjacent. Our third person will be Barr. She has five credits, two are in horror. Her first was I See You, which I rather liked before being in this one here. So for this movie here, we have a cold open where we have Lucas, portrayed by Montaro, and his older brother Tom, portrayed by Manning, playing a game. It is a title of the movie, Slapface. The game is simple. They take turns slapping each other as hard as they can. Later into this, Tom explains when challenged on why they do this. It's something that's special to them. It also helps them focus on the present through pain. It isn't healthy regardless, but they have some you know, issues they're dealing with. So during the credits, there are images from medieval times of demons. What I like here is that some of the drawings focus on children being taken. We also get some newspaper headlines about an evil entity that lives in the woods around the small town. There's also another one telling of Lucas and Tom's parents dying in a car accident, and these two boys survived. Now the movie then goes on giving us the backstory. Tom stepped up to take care of his brothers, so he wasn't taken into the foster system. It is more than he can handle though, and Lucas just kind of roams around all day. Tom goes to work and then to the bar. We see a bit of a drinking problem there. This most recent visit introduces him to Anna, portrayed by Barr, who comes home with him. It also is here that Tom speaks with the sheriff of John Thurston, portrayed by Hadea. Luke, on the other hand, goes to the library. He reads up on an entity that is supposed to be living in the woods and be associated with this old abandoned building. Now, there seems to be some sort of mythology or lore here that we never really get explored, but he puts a picture of his mother cuts his hand, and then asks for her back. Lucas also must deal with bullying from a set of twins, Donna and Rose, who are the two D'Ambroses. And then their friend of Moira, portrayed by Lee. It turns out that the latter has a crush on Lucas, but knows if she goes against the twins, they'll bully her too. Now, Tom and Anna are in love, which annoys Lucas, and I mean love in quotations. And Lucas kind of thinks he's losing his brother. Things are made worse when this entity from the woods might have latched onto Lucas. It doesn't seem to want to hurt him, but hurt those around him that does things to Lucas. So that's what I'm going to leave my recap, is that flushes us out a bit more of what we're getting, without going into spoilers. What I want to start is that my breakdown would be with Lucas. He has a rough go of it. He lost his parents when he was young, and now it's just him and his brother. He does have it better than some, since his brother is old enough to be his guardian. The problem here is that Tom isn't emotionally mature to take on this role. We see it wearing on him, and I think, therefore, Tom is an alcoholic. He is forced to give up his life to look after Lucas, and he isn't ready. There's this interesting look at young parenthood. Lucas is a good kid, but he doesn't have the support system that he needs. That is why this entity latches onto him, and also why Lucas accepts it to an extent. Now, I know that I was going to cover Lucas and describe more of his brother there, but I think that needed to be established. This movie is looking at abuse. Tom is part of that. This game they play of Slapface isn't healthy. Tom is his brother, but he also is the guardian, so we are getting a commentary here on child abuse. Tom, as I said, turns to alcohol to cope with his issues, so we are seeing a broken home. And they're orphans. Going along with this, Lucas is bullied by Donna and Rose. Moira also joins in a bit, but she does care about Lucas. I'm not shocked that he would allow this entity into his life, as it's the only thing that is truly there for him in his eyes. So I'm going to shift this over to then would be the entity itself. I like the idea of what we're getting here. It seems to be a witch or a hag of sorts. It is played by Hassel, but strategically we don't get a good look at it. We only see part of it. I think the cinematography is good there to shoot it from a low angle like we are seeing as Lucas would. This entity is quite tall as well. 
There might not actually be a creature though. There is a way to read this that is all in the head of Lucas and he is manifesting what he has seen. There are hints from Sheriff Thurston that Lucas might be troubled. I like to think that there is a creature, but I can also see what they're getting at. This creature is the manifestation of the bad things within Lucas, and what we're seeing is him getting his revenge on those that hurt him. Now that would be the more logical way of seeing things without an entity. As good as I'm making this sound, I did find this to be boring, unfortunately. Part of that could be when I was watching it, but it struggled to keep my attention. I think things got to be a bit too repetitive with what we were seeing. I wanted more of the creature and learning a bit more about this backstory could have helped. With a running time of less than 90 minutes, it is a shame to be honest. So then with that taken care of, I'll go over to the acting. I thought that Montaro does well as his boy who is struggling. With all the factors given, I can see the logical explanation to everything that we're seeing. I could also see why an entity like this could latch onto him as well. It is sad to see everything that he goes through. I thought Manning was solid as well as his older brother. He is dealing with things of his own and two of them do not have the healthiest ways of coping. They play well off of each other though. I liked Bear as Tom's love interest even though I think we're missing parts there. It feels forced and too fast. Lee is solid as Lucas's friend, but she isn't very good. Now her performance is fine, but just how she kind of treats this guy that she's supposed to have a crush on. They are kids, so there is that as well. Now, the D'Ambrosio twins are good as the bullies. I also liked Hassel and Hadea in their roles as well. I just thought the acting was solid across the board. So the last thing to go into would be the effects and soundtrack. What we're getting here are fine. They have a bit of CGI, but it worked. Most of what we're getting is hidden, which again, I'll credit the cinematography there. Look of the Monster was also good. I thought that the soundtrack fit for what was needed without necessarily standing out as well. So then real quickly here, before I close out my thoughts here, I do have a little bit of trivia that I wanted to share from the IMDb page. This was shot at the Umbra Sound Stages in Newburgh, New York, and on location in the Hudson Valley during the fall of 2019. Our lead actors, Montaro and Manning, are both Disney Channel alumni. Montaro appeared on the station sitcom Girl Meets World from 2014, where he played the notable role of Augie Matthews. And Manning starred in the station's original movie Cloud Nine from the same year where he played Nick Swift. Hassel reprises his role as the monster, now being called the Varigo Witch from the 2017 short film. This is a passion project for Kip, whose idea for this was inspired by his own childhood and love of monster movies. Tom was originally conceived in the 27 short film as Lucas's father, but being changed to his older brother for the feature. Post-production was done mostly remotely during the COVID-19 pandemic and was initially completed in November 2020, a month after... Manning joined the cast of NBC's Days of Our Lives. Additional post-production work commenced in February of 2021. Kip, the cinematographer Dominic Civilli, and co-executive producer Curtis Braley make cameos, and real-life members of the town of Fishkill Police Department also appear. William Sadler was originally attached to be the sheriff before Hadea took over due to his commitments to Bill and Ted Face the Music from 2020 a feature-length adaptation of Kip's 2017 short film of the same name. So in conclusion here, this movie had some promise. I like the social commentary that we're exploring, but I think the movie loses its way. We linger on things a bit too long instead of fleshing out some of the more interesting aspects. There is some time to play with, so I think by doing that, it makes the rest of the movie more interesting and work more. With what we have, the acting was solid across the board. I had no issues with the effects and cinematography does help there. Other than that, the soundtrack worked for what was needed. This movie is just over average. It is falling short with my issues to go any higher than that. So my rating here for Slapface is going to be a 6 out of 10. Now I'm not going to do a spoiler section here. 
as I don't really think there's anything else I really wanted to delve into or anything like that. So what I'm going to go ahead and do is get you over to the trailer of my second featured review. Late. Van Tassel always called upon his guests to tell him ghostly tales of Halloween. And Brown knew there was no more firm, potent believer in spooks and goblins than Ichabod Crane. Just gather round and I'll elucidate on what goes on outside when it gets late. Long about midnight, the ghosts and banshees, they get together for their nightly jamboree. There's things with horns and saucer eyes. Some with fangs about this size. Some are fat and some are thin. And some don't even wear their skin. Oh, I'm telling you, brother, it's a frightful sight to see what goes on Halloween night. <laughs> when spooks have a midnight jamboree, they break it up with English glee. Ghosts are bad, but the one that's cursed is the headless horseman. He's the worst. That's why he's mine on Halloween night. But when he goes to jogging across the land, Noggin in his hand, demons take one look and groan, and hit the road for far to know. Beware, take care, he rides alone. And there's no spook like spooked spurs. They don't like him, and he's really burnt. He swears to the longest day he's dead. He'll show them that he can get ahead. They say he's tired of his flaming top. He's got a yen to make a swap. So he rides one night each year to find a head in the hollow here. Now he likes them little, he likes them big. Or in the middle or awake. Black or white or even red. The headless horseman needs a head with, with a hip, hip, and a clippity clap. He's out looking for a cotton chop. Don't stop to figure out a plan. You can't reason with a headless man. Now, if you doubt this tale is so, I met that spook just a year ago. Now, I didn't stop for a second look, but made for the bridge that spans the brook. But once you cross that bridge, my friend, Home tonight, make for the bridge with all your might. He'll be down in the hollow there. He needs your head. Look out, beware. With a hip, hip, and a clippity-clop. He's down looking for a head to swap. So don't try to figure out a plan. You can't reason with a headless man. And for my second featured review is going to be my Trek Through the Twos as well as my Centennial Club movie. And that's going to be The Headless Horseman. This is from 1922. This was directed by Edward D. Venturini. This is based on the story from Washington Irving of The Legend of Sleepy Hollow. And then the adaptation was done by Carl Stearns Clancy. This stars Will Rogers, Lois Meredith, and Ben Hendricks Jr. While also featuring... Charles E. Graham, Mary Foy, Bernard A. Reinold, Downing Clark, Jerry Devine, James Sheridan, Kay McCloslin, and Nancy Chase. 
This is a comedy drama horror film that is from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 4.9 on IMDb and a 2.5 on Letterboxd. With our synopsis here being, The village of Sleepy Hollow is getting ready to greet the new school teacher, Ichabod Crane, portrayed by Rogers, who is coming from New York. As he tries to get ingrained in his new village, not everyone likes the new teacher. So this is a movie that I originally picked up after seeing and enjoying Sleepy Hollow. I was familiar enough with the source material having read it when I was in junior high. It isn't necessarily on the level of H.P. Lovecraft or Edgar Allan Poe when it comes to the classics, but most everyone knows the story of the Headless Horseman and Ichabod Crane. So before I get into the movie itself, let me do some notes on some of the key players here. and I'll start off with our director, who is named Venturini. He has three credits in this role. This is his first feature and the only one in horror. He did do two westerns outside of this, and I hadn't seen any of those. This is the only movie here. Then the writer of Clancy has three credits as well. Much like our director, this is the only one in horror and the only one that I've seen. He did do a movie called The Adventurous Sex. Now, he had more work as a director and a producer from what I saw. This, of course, is adapted from the story by Irving, and there have been 70 adaptations of his work. 13 are considered horror. So far, I've only seen this and Sleepy Hollow. Moving to our actors, I'll start with our lead. Rogers has 60 credits. I have seen two. Out of horror, he was in Judge Priest, which I believe I saw in film class. This was also his most popular. He was quite popular as well before getting into this movie here. He does have another one in horror with One Glorious Day from the same year, but this does look like it's considered to be a lost film. So I'll get into that once I do my you know rundown list episode that'll be coming in the near future. I'll then move to Meredith, who has three credits in acting. This is her only one in horror and that I've seen. It did look like she worked with John Barrymore once. Lastly, I'll look at Hendrix. He has quite the career as well. It looks like he did a lot of gangster movies with James Cagney. He was in things like The Public Enemy, Little Caesar, and Rain with Joan Crawford. This was his only horror film, though. So much like the synopsis states, we start this movie in the village of Sleepy Hollow preparing to greet Ichabod. He is a man of science, but he also has knowledge of ghosts and other supernatural things. He is quite familiar with the legend of the Headless Horseman. Upon arriving, he is greeted by a welcome committee. It is most of the higher-ups of the village, which includes Baltus Van Tassel, portrayed by Reinald. He is the richest farmer in the area. His daughter is also the most desirable unmarried person, and her name is Katrina Van Tassel, and portrayed by Meredith. Abraham Van Brunt is also known as Brom Bones, who is portrayed by Hendrix. Now, he has eyes set on Katrina and is jealous when she seems interested in Ichabod Crane. So then Ichabod goes about teaching the children, but he upsets Dame Martling, who is portrayed by Foy. Now, her son Jethro, who is portrayed by Sheridan, is a troublemaker in school. To get back at Ichabod, she tries to find ways to punish him and to get him out of town. Brom Bones helps here as him and his friends tear up the school. Ichabod believes it to be done by witches. Jethro relays what happens, and she sees a way to get the elders of the village to turn on him. So before ending fleshing out the story here, Katrina is interested in Ichabod. He must work up the courage to share his feelings. He also won't be easily run out of town. Part of this is having no money, but there's also his pride. Now an encounter with the Headless Horseman could change things for him, though. So now I'll be honest. This version of the story ran about 75 minutes, and there isn't a whole lot to the story, if I'm honest. It is so long since I've read that story, and I'm not sure about the characters outside of Ichabod and Headless Horseman. I'm inclined to think that the Van Tassels, Van Brunts, Van Rippers, and Martlings are all there. In this era of filmmaking, 
where you'd take an established story and adapt it to the screen, this movie does well in presenting the characters and even a bit of the mythology here. So in the last bit that makes this story interesting is the mythology. The Headless Horseman is an interesting character. It is believed to be a soldier who lost his head and at night searches for it. There are stories shared about the entity and racing characters and stuff like that. Now we get a character one night who wakes up thinking she hears the horseman. Her husband quiets her fears informing her that it's just Brown Bones and his crew. We get a cool ghostly effect to see the horseman early in the movie. The problem is that we don't see him again until the end. What I wanted more of is what we got in like the movie Sleepy Hollow. This isn't that type of movie and I also don't think they had the resources to show it more. I like the effects that were used that first time. I'm not a fan of the reveal at the end of the movie though. Since this movie is part comedy, I think they're trying to play it up for laughs. So that'll take me over to another issue that I have here as this movie is boring despite its low runtime. I think it's due to what they focus on. Rogers is good as Ichabod and I even like the arrogance he plays the role with. Meredith works as Katrina. We don't flesh her out all that much but we can tell she has a crush on Ichabod. She is in a tough position with Brown Bones interested in her. I even think that Hendrix is as solid as that character. The problem that we focus on them too much when we don't need it. The movie bogs down because of it. I also wanted to give credit to Foy, Sheridan, and the rest of the acting as it all works. It is over the top, but this is a silent film, so they needed to play it that way. So there's not much else I can really talk about with this movie, but I will say the cinematography is good for the era. We are early into cinema, so it's static, and we don't get much in the way of cuts. I like what they did with the introductions to the Headless Horseman. The costumes do make it feel like the era it is set. The only other aspect would be the soundtrack. This can get dicey as I'm in, not entirely sure what should be synced up here. What we get is good though. It adds atmosphere to the movie. It is the same song that we get played over and over again quite a bit. They might be using like two or three, but for the most part, that's just kind of what we're getting. It doesn't ruin it, but just something I wanted to bring up here. So then before I kind of close everything out here, I have just a little bit of trivia. This is the first feature photographed on panchromatic negative film, which was equally sensitive to all colors of the spectrum, unlike the earlier Arthur chromatic film, which rendered blue skies and blue eyes as pale white. Some of the exteriors were shot on land in the Hudson Valley that was owned by the Rockefeller family, which actually makes this for an interesting double feature here is that both of these movies took place in the Hudson Valley. Now, entire production made in Terrytown at the exact locations Irving had in mind when writing this famous story. This was in a newspaper from the Yonkers Statement and News back on January 8th of 1923. So, in conclusion here, this is a decent take on the source material for early cinema. This is an era where you would base many movies off established works. I like Ichabod and think Rogers does well in portraying the character. The Lord of the Headless Horseman is good, but I wanted more there. This movie just has a twinge of comedy that doesn't necessarily work for me. I would say the acting was fine and that this was shot was in line with the era. There are movies from the same time frame that did more there and even with the effects. Other than that, I'd say the soundtrack of my version fit and helped with the atmosphere. I believe this to be above average. It's just lacking some parts for me to go higher than that. So my rating here for The Headless Horseman is going to be a 6.5 out of 10. Once again, I'm not going to do a spoiler section as it would really just be me revealing, you know, something that happens near the end of the movie. Even though this movie is 100 years old, I don't want to do that. So what I'm going to go ahead and do is get you over to a very brief break before I close out the show. I would like to welcome you back one last time and then just to close everything out here for this episode, 
If you'd like to get in touch with me with any sort of feedback or to send me anything you'd like to have read on the show, you can send me an email at journeywithacinephile at gmail.com. And if you want me to read anything on the show, just let me know in the email that you send to me. And if you'd like to read any of the reviews for anything on this episode or any of the past episodes, that's Reviews of the Dead, and that's horrorreview.webnode.com. If you'd like to become friends with me on Facebook, I'm David Michigan Garrett Jr. On Twitter, I'm Buckeye from Mish. Letterboxd, I'm David OSU. And over there, I'll be posting all of the reviews for anything that is horror or non-horror-like that I've been watching. If you'd like to follow my Instagram page, that's davidosu87. And then the Journey with a Cinephile Instagram is Journey with a Cinephile, all one word. Over there, I'll be posting all of the posters of anything that I am watching and everything like that. And then if you, you know, follow my personal Instagram, you might see some personal pictures every now and then when I actually remember to, you know, take some and post them. And the other thing that I'd ask you to do is that whatever podcatching device you're listening to me on, if you can go ahead and hit subscribe so you never miss a new episode, that'd be greatly appreciated. As well, if you're able to rate and review, just so I can figure out what I'm doing that you don't like and what I'm doing that you do like, as well as to get out to more listeners out there as well. So for the next episode, it's going to be 125. And since that's another milestone there, what I'm going to be doing is I meant to do this last year, but just kind of ran out of time. But I will do my top 10 horror movies from 1951 as well as any of the ones that did not make that list with some honorable mentions there and everything like that. And then for my 2022 release is going to be Uma. I, Jamie and I, not sure what day we're going to go see that at the Gateway Film Center, but we're going to go check that one out. And then I'm also going to be watching Burn Witch Burn, a.k.a. Night of the Eagle, as my Trek Through the Twos. That'll take me back to 1962 as one that I have seen once, but it's been quite a while since then. Don't think there's anything else I need to get you up to speed with here as I will continue to watch, you know, more horror movies to have more mini reviews and everything like that. So what I will say then in closing is that thank you so much for listening. And then whatever you do today, I hope you're safe and doing it. Have a great time out there. This is your tour guide of David Garrett Jr. And I am signing off. It had been a wonderful evening. And what I needed now to give it the perfect ending 